From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. With Greater Sydney's most recent lockdown extended until July 16, the race is now on to get the Delta variant of COVID under some form of control. But if New South Wales health is unable to contain the virus, the consequences of having the disease loose in a largely unvaccinated population is frightening to public health experts and frontline healthcare workers alike. This episode, we check in with the Medical Republic's COVID blogger, Bianca Nugrady, to talk about the state of play here in Australia and what it means for a post-lockdown future. Bianca, welcome back to the Tea Room. Nice to be here. So in the last few days, we've seen more pressure on the federal government to get vaccines into Australians' arms. And it all comes back to this very loose, and I, I say loose because there's no numerical targets involved as far as anyone can see, the four-point plan to get Australia back to normal. Maybe to start with, what do you think went so wrong in our vaccination program to the effect that New South Wales is now back in a multi-week lockdown 18 months into this pandemic? Gosh, that's, uh, I think there's going to be uh, there's going to be books written about this in the future. So it's um, uh, it's a difficult one to answer. Um, and you know, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of the government not planning ahead enough, um, of making poor decisions around the purchasing of vaccines initially when these vaccines were um, were coming out and companies were approaching. Uh, various countries around the world to offer them amounts of vaccines to pre-purchase and from what I understand from media coverage um, you know we did have an opportunity to buy more of the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines at that time but the government chose to um, I guess to back AstraZeneca more strongly because it was a vaccine that we could make locally whereas we can't for the moment make the mRNA vaccines locally. Um, You know I think history has shown that that was the wrong decision because now we, you know, instead of um, having a range of vaccines to choose from, uh, we are, we're kind of stuck with largely with one, although short, you know, that doesn't seem to be in, in kind of ready supply either. We're stuck with one that has, um, has had some issues, obviously, very rare issues, um, but nonetheless, those issues have not helped um, vaccine uptake in the population. And then, the vaccines that we, um, you know, everybody wants to get, which are the mRNA vaccines, uh, we don't have nearly enough of and we're awaiting more supplies of those arriving, I think, probably in the next month or two. In fact, they're supposed to start in, in the next week. So, you know, hopefully we'll st- see more of the Pfizer coming through. But we've only just, um, we, you know, we've not even had the Moderna vaccine available in Australia and I think that's being licensed or is going through the process of being licensed now. Similarly, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, which is also another um, adenovirus-based vaccine, viral vector vaccine. So that has also had some of the same issues with the um, clotting disorder as the AstraZeneca vaccine has had. So those, those vaccines will be coming. Um, I, it's, it's really hard to know. I mean, you know, I, I feel like this, the government had everything working in its favour to have a smooth, rapid vaccine rollout in this country. You know, we we had all of the opportunities to get this right because we had time on our hands. We had essentially very low rates of infection, almost non-existent for, you know, weeks at a time. We had basically nothing um, in the country. We had no hospitals overrun. We had a population that was 
willing and eager to be vaccinated. You know, we're generally pretty good at, at um, knowing that, that this is a good thing. Um, and it all just got squandered. It got squandered by poor decision making in terms of vaccine purchases, by incredibly poor health communication, like just terrible health communication around these vaccines. It's like every time Greg Hunt opened his mouth or Morrison opened their mouths, you could just see the kind of percentages, you know, of, of vaccine hesitant Australians going up as they're like, oh, well, maybe I should wait, maybe I should wait. And, you know, that has also contributed to us being where we are today. Um, there's also you know, the, the kind of poor coordination between state and federal governments over the vaccine rollout, which has meant that, you know, one kind of source of vaccines, GPs, is run by the federal government, but then you have these state-run hubs that are providing more of the Pfizer. And there's also an absolute lack of transparency over just the whole, the kind of mechanics of this process, um, how they're being rolled out, how many doses available, of what vaccines, where are they being distributed, who are they being distributed through, um, and the lack of transparency has also has bred a lack of trust and a lack of, um, I, I guess, confidence in in this rollout. And you, you know, we had we had everything going for us, and now we're really at the bottom of the um, of the heap in terms of OECD nations for for vaccine uptake. So I mean, it, it's it's a dismal dismal failure for a country that has so much wealth, has so much. Um, effective health infrastructure has a population that has, you know, pretty high rates of vaccine uh, acceptance compared to some other parts of the world, and um, and very low rates of COVID. And yet here we are. We find ourselves with, you know, the the most populous state and the and the largest city in lockdown. And the economic consequences of that, in terms of people's jobs and people who who are struggling to put food on the table at the best of times, are just going to be um, absolutely devastating. So. You know, in an ideal world, this would have serious political ramifications. But I think all we see is kind of, you know, day after day of, of ass covering um, and, and no accountability. So it makes me furious having, you know, written about this disease for so long and seeing us being in such a good situation to have fallen so far through incompetence is just galling. I can really understand that frustration, Bianca. I know that all journalists who have been following this pandemic and, and particularly looking at colleagues overseas who were also following the pandemic in their own nations and they're all now in some ways living life um, in an ordinary summer in the Northern Hemisphere because other countries had the foresight to vaccinate people. And as you were saying, they did it when they had soaring cases of COVID and we had long stretches where we had no inpatients with COVID in our hospitals. Maybe if we turn our attention to the vaccination that was happening overseas, and particularly I know you've been doing some research into the Russian vaccine Sputnik, what do we know about this vaccine? So Sputnik's a really interesting vaccine, both scientifically and politically. Um, it, it got off to a, a rocky start because um, essentially the Russian uh, health authorities um, authorised it. They, they licensed it before the phase one, two trial results had even been released and before the phase three study had even started. So they licensed it. They, they just came out of the gate. And, you know, I guess Russia is synonymous with Putin. So there was a sense that there was 
um, some strong political um, muscle behind the scenes on that. And the name does give some clues. Calling it Sputnik Five is a definite throwback to you know the previous time with well, one of many previous times when the Russians beat the rest of the world, which was to get the first man-made object um, into orbit. So there was, a, you know, there were some political questions about it. And obviously, you know, when the data came out, there was a lot of nervousness about how um, reliable it was, um, whether it could be trusted, whether there'd been any kind of political interference behind the scenes. Um, and so we've now had phase one, two and three um, study results published from, from that vaccine. It's also now licensed in or approved for use in 67 countries around the world. So it's actually ahead of um, Johnson & Johnson. It's only behind uh, Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna in terms of its um, the, the kind of uh, widespread nature of its, of its use. Um, the data, so it's a, a, a viral, an adenoviral vector vaccine. So it's the same approach that's been taken with the AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Where it differs is that um, AstraZeneca uses the same um, type of adenovirus for the first and the second dose. Um, the Sputnik uses two different um, strains of adenovirus. And one of the reasons, or what's thought to be the reason for that, is that. Um, it means that your immune system is less likely to mount a response to the adenoviral vector with the second dose. And so because um, that's apparently one of the reasons why the AstraZeneca um, doses are given so far apart is to ensure that you don't generate an immune response to the adenoviral vector itself instead of generating an immune response to the spike protein that it's carrying. So um, and there's something to do maybe with the strain as well that the single dose of the Sputnik vaccine, the first dose, is actually significantly more effective than the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, to the extent that Russia's actually now also um, released what they call Sputnik Light, which is, which is a single dose uh, vaccine. Um, so the other interesting thing about it is so far there doesn't seem to be any evidence of the same um, clotting problems that have um, emerged with the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, um, which is interesting because, you know, they're all adenoviral vector vaccines. Um, and so I think the original thinking was that the clotting was some function of something to do with the adenovirus itself. But the fact now that the Russian one appears to not uh, be associated with that very rare side effect uh, does then kind of raise the question of, well, what is that side effect the result of? What's going on here? Um, but there is also the question of whether the kind of, you know, because this is such a rare side effect, it's not necessarily going to be picked up in a phase three trial, uh, which is the same as what happened with AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. These side effects only emerged after the vaccines were released and were rolled out to, you know, millions of people. And then, you know, you started to get enough numbers that these um, these side effects became noticeable. Um, and so there, you know, we have relied to a large degree on this post-marketing surveillance, as we do with any drug. You know, at some point, if there's a very rare side effect, you're probably not going to see it in a in a clinical trial setting uh, where you've got maybe 20,000 people. But then, when you start rolling it out into the millions, that's when they emerge. Um, but then that relies on there being effective post-marketing surveillance um, in Russia for this side effect and. That's really where there's a big question mark is whether the, the sort of surveillance systems in Russia and in a lot of the countries that are using Sputnik, are they good enough um, and are they thorough enough to pick up 
this very rare side effect. Um, I, I did a really interesting interview with a, a with a Russian um, scientist who was talking about this, and he said, you know, the problem with with Russians is that you know they only go and see a doctor when they basically can't breathe, they're half dead, and so he's you know, and he said if if, if they can breathe, they sit down and they have a cup of tea with lemon. Uh, so you know, he was kind of suggesting that that sort of famous Russian stoicism may in fact be uh, hiding potentially, or or not not hiding. Um, May mean that some of if there is uh, if there are any incidents of this clotting disorder, it might not be being picked up. Um, but time will tell. I mean, it's in use in sixty-seven countries. You know, a lot of those countries are, are bigger. You know, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Turkey, Iran. Um, I think if there was a safety signal associated, you know, a, even a rare one associated with the vaccine. We should be starting to see that emerge um, somewhere, and it, so it may be that it it doesn't. But you know, the the it's a very effective vaccine. It's definitely on par with with the um, the kind of three four existing licensed vaccines. Um, the side effects profile in terms of the sort of minor systemic and localized reactions seem to be pretty similar. So you know, it it, it looks like. It's a good vaccine. Um, there's, there's certainly nothing causing significant alarm at this stage. I mean, you know, if it came to Australia, I, if I hadn't already been vaccinated, I would, I would get it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting one. It's sort of one of those cases where politics kind of in some ways and anti-Russian sentiment or uh, sort of concern about Russian politics uh, definitely weighed against this particular piece of science. That's very interesting, Bianca. It's funny, though, that you mentioned that Russian stoicism. I'm now wondering in my mind whether in, you know, emergency rooms in Russia, if there's a whole other pain scale that they have to use because (laughs) um, the patients are so stoic about what they're going through. Speaking of picking up vaccination side effects, the first patient in Australia that got TTS as a result of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What was the severity of the course of TTS in that patient? Well, it was pretty severe. So this was actually a report in the MJA about the very first case of the vaccine-associated thrombosis with thrombocytopenia, which uh, never really rolls off the tongue. Um, And it was a 44-year-old healthcare worker who ended up having to have nearly two metres of bowel removed because um, the clot actually com- uh, pretty much completely uh, blocked his portal and splenic veins and then um, also got into the mesenteric vein and um, caused, you know, ischemia and a huge section of bowel. So um, the poor chap ended up having about, yeah, 1.8 metres of bowel removed, um, was in hospital for 34 days but did recover Um and I don't know if he's actually still, well, no, must have left hospital now because that was quite some time ago. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, the, this particular case presented about eight days after he'd received his first dose. He had abdominal discomfort, fevers, fatigue, and what was described as head fogginess. Um, and importantly, I guess for later cases, he was strongly positive for um, heparin platelet factor 4 antibodies, which uh, despite having never actually been treated with um, heparin. So these are the... Um, the antibodies that are um, what are kind of a consistent biomarker associated with this um, TTS syndrome. So, um, and he had very low platelet levels, very high D-dimer levels. Um, he was treated with very high doses of anticoagulants, but I think by that point the the con- sort of situation was a bit grim. So, they had to make the decision to remove his bowel. Um, so, you know, it's it's always a bit 
there's a bit of uncertainty when it comes to reporting these these kind of stories and case studies because obviously it's important. It's um, it's interesting. We learned a lot from those very early cases, which now mean that um, you know cases of TTS are being picked up very early. They're being treated very effectively. Um, we've only so far had two fatalities, um, and I think there's last count there was 69 cases of TTS that have been reported in Australia, and that's from about 4.8 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, you know, once again, it's always important to reiterate this is an incredibly rare side effect. Um, It's very treatable, um, you know, I mean, it is serious, and I think a significant proportion of the people, uh, something like 18 of the 69 cases, I think, have required um, treatment-intensive care. Um, Most have been fully discharged from hospital um some other yeah the average time to onset is around 12 days but obviously that I think it can range from 4 to 28 so it's you know it, it's a tricky one um and I guess particularly what's you know what's interesting now is as we do have increasing rates of infections in Australia and particularly in New South Wales and Queensland um you know does that change the risk calculations or at least the risk benefit calculations around um, the AstraZeneca vaccine Um, because obviously you know COVID is associated with an incredibly high risk of very very dangerous clots so it's um, it's really a case of weighing up weighing up those two competing uh, levels of risk and as you know and particularly with the Delta variant as well uh, which we know is um, much more transmissible and I think there seems there may be some emerging evidence that it affects a wider range of ages as well. It's not so concentrated in terms of serious illness. It's not so concentrated in older people uh, compared to some of the previous strains. And we're certainly seeing that with the hospitalisation figures in New South Wales. There are a lot of people under 50 um, and even under 30 or in their 30s who are hospitalised with COVID at the moment. So, you know, in that situation, I think the, the kind of risk-benefit ratio shifts a little bit and, and certainly makes AstraZeneca a more attractive prospect even in those younger people. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one and, and certainly was, a lot was learned from that case. Bianca Nogrady, thank you. Thanks so much. You can listen to more episodes of The Tea Room and subscribe to the show by searching for The Tea Room Medical Republic in your favourite podcast player. Catch you next time.